0: How's it going, you guys? Man, how talented is she? Right, could you, yeah, seriously, could you imagine being that talented at something? Jeez, oh man, that's incredible. Um, you guys might be thinking, wait, that's not Mac. Um, and you'd be right. My name is Jordan. Uh, my wife Kaylee and I, we get to be the next gin directors here uh, at Lake Hills. Yes, we love it. It is such a joy and an honor to be in this space with you all. Um, I wanted to give you a little fun fact about me as we get started today. Um, all through elementary school and even through sixth grade, uh, I was homeschooled. You can probably tell. Um, <laughs> it's a joke. I Actually, I'm really grateful for the time that I spent homeschooled. My sister graduated homeschooled. My families are, were big fans. But the thing about being homeschooled is um, your friends aren't necessarily built in. It's not like you're going to school and meeting new people. So you have to get creative and intentional when you're meeting friends. And my parents were always really creative and intentional, and they did it in three ways. Uh, First, a way they had us meet friends was we went to church. Um, We spent so much time at church. It was like practically my school. I know they say like pastor's kids spend a lot of time at church. Uh, Homeschool kids do too, uh, if you guys didn't know that. Uh, Second, uh, we uh, played in literally every single local sports league every single one. It didn't matter the sport. There was one time I spent an entire week at racquetball camp. (laughs) It's a slept on sport, guys. It is super fun. Uh, And that's all those sports is how I kind of turned into this elite athlete (laughs) that you guys see uh, today. But the third way in which uh, my parents were intentional about having us make friends were these things we called parent dates. Now, If you don't know what a parent date is, I'll explain it to you. Uh, It's when uh, parents from two different families meet each other and they really hit it off and then they use their kids as an excuse to hang out with each other. It goes something like, oh my gosh, you guys are so fun. I bet your son would love my son. How about you guys both come over and they'll hang out and then we'll chat or whatever, right? It's a great move. I plan on using it someday. Um, But my mom's a very friendly person, was always meeting new people. And so my siblings and I found ourselves uh, on parent dates often. Uh, And they were usually pretty awkward. We didn't really uh, look forward to them. But there was one specific parent date I remember uh, that I just will never forget I was about 10 or 11 years old, uh, and it's because this specific family brought a gift, and that gift, well, they would take it back at the end. They didn't give it to us, Um, but it was a bright yellow go-kart. Yeah, yeah, I I was 10. I had never driven a go-kart before. I remember coming outside and seeing them unload it from the trailer, and then the parents connected and went inside, and then the kids were just standing around this go-kart, and we just had to deal with it. Um, So we came up with a system, civilized people, uh, where we would take turns. And so I waited patiently for my turn for what felt like an eternity, but finally it came. So I jumped in, uh, put my seatbelt on, and zoomed away, and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, There was a hill at the back of my neighborhood that was about a quarter mile long, and it was pretty steep. And so I drove up to the top of that hill, I lined the cart up, I took a deep breath, and then I punched it. And I flew down this hill. I was going so fast. In my brain, I was like, I look so cool. I bet no one has ever driven a go-kart this fast. I'm breaking a world record. I was picturing myself in the future being a professional go-kart racer, all of those things. Now, at the bottom of this hill, the road took a sharp left turn. Uh, and I am careening towards this turn, and right as I take my foot off the gas to apply the brake to make the turn safely, I look over to my right, and no joke, you guys, I see the cutest dog I had ever seen. It was an Australian Shepherd, uh, but it wasn't a, a normal Australian Shepherd. It was a fat Australian Shepherd. Is there any other people who love fat animals? Yeah, they're my favorite. I know it's not necessarily healthy for them, but the fatter the better, in my opinion. I think they're so cute. Uh, And so I see it, and in my brain, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that is the cutest dog I have ever. And then the road cuts out from under me. And I go careening into this ditch that is overlooked by a pasture filled with horses. Now, luckily, I was not hurt. Um, I could not say the same, for the bright yellow go-kart. I couldn't. Uh, There was rocks and dirt all in it. It was no longer bright yellow. One of the tires was popped and it was just, it was not running anymore. Uh, And all the while I look up and see this herd of horses and I can feel their judgment being like, I know I have hooves, but I can drive a go-kart better than that guy. (laughs) But I could feel it and then two questions popped into my brain. How did I get here? and what am I going to do now? How did I get here, and what am I going to do now? So I sprung into action. I tried pulling the go-kart up out of the ditch, but I wasn't strong enough, and I, the, the horses neighed and was like, of course you're not. You're weak, and you're terrible at driving go-karts, and, um, and then I tried restarting it, but it wasn't working either, and so I'm running out of ideas at this point, and I'm just like, man, how did I get here? What am I going to do now? I've exhausted all my options. These horses are judging me. I don't know what to do. And so finally I build up the courage and I go to a random stranger's house who lived by, knocked on the door, and a lady opens the door to see 10-year-old Jordan sobbing and saying something about a go-kart. Now, She was so kind, she walked out, she helped me get the go-kart up out of the ditch, she primed the engine, she pulled the cord and miraculously it started. I thanked her, I hugged her, she's like, that's weird. Uh, I got got into the go-kart and I zoomed away, going much slower and paying much better attention to where I was going. But I remember these two questions of like, man, how did I get here and what am I going to do now? These two questions have come up periodically throughout my life as I've entered into situations, and I don't think I'm abnormal in that. I think these are two questions that come into our brain often. Sometimes they pop into our brain when we've gone through like some sort of traumatic event, like a relationship breaking apart, or a business deal falling through, or a friendship ending, or you've just driven a bright yellow go-kart into a pasture of unjudgmental horses. Man, how did I get here, and what am I gonna do now? There are other times these questions have popped into my head when I've been given a deep gift, a profound gift that I felt honored to take part in. Um, Kaylee and I have been married for almost t- 10 months now, um, which is absurd to me. It's been so fun. I love being married to her. But I remember on our wedding day, there were moments where I would watch her. She would be on the dance floor wearing her wedding dress, had these like, light-up glasses she was wearing, and she was doing some dance to like cha-cha slide or another Another group dance I refused to participate in. (laughs) And I remember there were multiple moments where I'd look down at my hand and saw the new ring on my finger, and then I'd look at hers and saw the rings on hers. And I would think, I'm a husband now. She is my wife. How did I pull this off? Man, how did I get here? and what do I do now?" Sometimes we ask these questions if we experience God in a profound way, whether for the first time or the tenth time or on a hundredth time. When we encounter God, these questions can come to the foremo- forefront of our mind, because something mysterious happens in our souls and we're just like, kind of left to deal with it. How did I get here? What am I going to do now? Right now we're in a series called Faith Works, if you can read, Um, and Uh, What we've been doing is we are exploring the relationship between our faith life and how we move in the world, how we walk in the world, what our work is, the things we do, the things we uh, pour into the world. And today, we're going to continue to explore that relationship. But first, if you guys haven't seen Mac's uh, message from last week, I encourage you to do so. He did an incredible job of talking about that it is because of the free gift of grace, the free offering of salvation that was bought and paid for by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that we get to develop a godly work ethic. So that shapes our lives so that when we walk out, we can walk in a way that no matter what we do, we are working for God and with God. And so today, we're going to continue exploring that, and specifically today, we're going to explore the relationship between our faith life and our self-work, the work we do in ourselves, the work we do in our own hearts, and we're going to do so through the lens of a young community of new believers uh, in an early church plant that we find early in the Bible, a group of believers in a place called Philippi. Say Philippi. There you go. Philippi. Now, these believers would have been asking the question, man, how did we get here, and what do we do now? Let me give you a little background. This church was planted by a guy named Paul. Have you guys heard of Paul. Some of you have, some of you haven't. Uh, Paul's an early missionary and teacher that comes out of the Bible. We learn a lot about him in the book of Acts, and he wrote actually a good chunk of our New Testament. Um, but Paul's a missionary, and him and his friend Silas one time visit this place called Philippi. This is in Acts chapter 16, and what we see is there's a couple stories that come out of their visit. Paul and Silas meet two families from different walks of life and interact with the heads of their household. And as a result, a church starts. The first is a woman named Lydia. Lydia was a prominent businesswoman uh, in Philippi. Uh, She sold, what the Bible tells us, is she sold uh, purple cloth, which was a big deal back then. So she's a prominent businesswoman. She meets Paul and Silas, they share the gospel with her. She accepts Jesus, is baptized, goes home, tells her family about it, and her entire household is saved, is baptized, and are now Christians. So that's the first story. The second story we learn about in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, Paul encounters a Philippian jailer. Um, And he does the same thing with the jailer. He tells them the gospel the jailer, accepts Jesus, is baptized, goes home, and his entire family is baptized. And so what you see in Acts chapter 16 is these two families from two entirely different walks of life, one business, one military, come together to form the foundation of a young church plant that stays in contact with Paul through the rest of Paul's life. And if you look at the re- writings of Paul, it's hard to argue um, that Philippian, the Philippian church wasn't his favorite. Like the way that he talks about them is just like gushing. He loves Philippi. And so what happens is Paul comes in, shares the gospel with these two families, they form the foundation of this young church in Philippi, and then Paul leaves to go plant churches elsewhere. And what happens is actually pretty normal, it happened a lot, is there was a group of teachers that came in after Paul and began teaching a different gospel, a gospel where salvation was earned through participation in different rituals that you would find in the Old Testament. And so they would teach this, and they were so passionate about this other gospel that if the people did not believe it, uh, believed in the way of Jesus, they would put them in prison. So this is what was happening to this young church plant. They're encountering a new group of people who are telling them a different way, and if they didn't agree with them, they were getting imprisoned for it. Naturally, they could start asking the questions of like, man, how did we get here again? And what are we going to do now? So when Paul hears about this, hears about these teachers, he writes a letter to this church. Does anybody know what that letter is? The book of Philippians. Yeah, some of you did. The book of Philippians that you can find in your Bible in the New Testament is the letter that Paul writes to this church talking about this specific issue, and he's answering the question of how did we get here and what do we do now? So if you have your Bible, let's turn. We're gonna be in Philippians chapter two today. We're gonna start out in verse five. We're gonna read to verse 11. This is Paul writing to a young church asking, how did we get here, and what do we do now? Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen. It says this. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, So he's writing to these young Philippians who are asking the question of how did we get here and what are we going to do now? And his response is he gives us this passage about Christ emptying Christ's self. And actually, fun fact about this, the thing that he is quoting here about how Christ emptied himself is one of the oldest worship songs we have. Christ is literally quoting a hymn that would have been sung in churches mere decades after Jesus was uh, Walking in the earth. So Paul didn't make this up. He's quoting something that they already would have said. And so what he's saying is he's reminding them that the reason why we are here is because God, Christ, Jesus, the one who made it all, emptied himself and became like us. He humbled himself and became like us and as a result was obedient to the point of death and and because of that was raised up to the highest place where now he is king over the world. And it is from that position that we get to enter into relationship with Christ. So what Paul's saying is how did we get here? He's reminding him we got here because Christ humbled himself and became like us. That's not all he says. He also says at the very beginning, Philippians 2, 5, he says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So where they're asking of like, how did we get here and what do we do now? His answer to what do we do now is because Christ humbled himself and became like us, we can humble ourselves and become like Christ. Do you guys catch that? What he's talking about is shaping your life, organizing your life in such a way where you imitate the life of Christ, that you walk in the same way in the world as Christ walked. Because Christ humbled himself and became like us, we can humble ourselves and become like Christ. And this isn't the first time anybody said this. This had always been the pattern. Even if you look at the early movement of Jesus, when Jesus first starts his ministry in the world, he gathers together a group of 12 young men called the disciples. And this is something that we talk about all the time in LHC students. If there's any students in here, do you guys know how old the disciples were? Anybody? No? All right. They were middle schoolers and high schoolers. Contextually, the age of the disciples would have been between the age of 13 and 18. Every single one of them except for Peter, who only would have been slightly older. So right now, Jesus gathers together a group of young men. And we're gonna talk about a story that right after he's gathered this group of young men together, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 10 real fast. What he's decided to do is grab these group of middle schoolers and high schoolers and invites them and challenges them to go out into the surrounding region and do what he does in the world. He says this, Matthew chapter 10, verses seven and eight. He's talking to this group of young men. He says, as you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near." Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. Here's the thing. Those are the very things that Jesus had been doing in the world. He had been going around proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He'd been healing people. He'd been cleansing people. He'd been casting out demons. He'd been raising people from the dead. And then he looks at this, young, this group of young men and says, go and do what I do like me. Go do that in the world. And not only that, he says, you receive without payment, give without payment. So not only is he calling his disciples to go do what Jesus did in the world, but he's also calling them to do it in the same way, with the same heart, to organize and structure their life so that their life reflects the life of Jesus. Where Jesus poured out for the world, they pour out for the world. Where Jesus took others' interests above his own, they took others' interests above their own. Where Jesus loved radically, they loved radically. He's shaping them to actually, their lives reflect the life of Jesus. And one of these disciples, much, much later, writes another letter, letter, the disciple John in 1 John chapter 2 6. He's talking about Jesus. You can tell this idea has sunk deep in his heart. And he says this Whoever says, I abide in him, Jesus, ought to walk just as he walked. So when Paul is writing to this group of Philippians and he's saying, because Christ humbled himself to become like us, what we do now is we humble ourselves to become like Christ. We intentionally shape our life to where we walk in the world in the same way that we, he walked. We pour out in the same way that he poured out. And here's the thing. You see it all throughout the course of the New Testament. For those who follow Jesus... It is normal for over the course of our life for us to become more and more and more like him in this lifetime. It's a normal process that as we engage with God, as we know with God, our walk begins to match the way in which he walked in the world. Because Christ humbled himself and became like us, now we humble ourselves and become like Christ. And then Paul goes on, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, the very next verse, he says this. After he's told them that we're here to become more like Jesus, we're here because of Jesus and here to become more like Jesus, he says this. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he looks at them and he's like, okay, Now that I've given you this vision that we humble ourselves over the course of our life to look more like Jesus, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? Let's first say what Paul is not saying. He's not saying that you need to work to earn your salvation, right? Because just a few verses earlier, he said, we are here because Christ humbled himself. The work of Jesus has brought us into relationship with Christ. But that word he uses here, it says, work out the, the Greek word is karagodzomai, which as soon as I heard that, I was like, that's my new favorite word. <laughs> karagodzomai. It literally means to work down from. In other words, what Paul is saying is from the free gift of salvation, we spend our life working to look more like Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is that the process of becoming more like Christ, the process of humbling yourself, is one that takes work. Intentional, consistent, sacred self work. There's an author, his name is Eugene Peterson. He wrote The Message and also a bunch of other stuff. Um, He wrote a book on this process, the process of discipleship, the process of becoming more like Jesus, and he called it Long Obedience in the Same Direction. How good is that? I remember the first time I ever heard it, I was 23 and I was just starting out in ministry and I sat down with someone who had been in ministry for a while, who had planted a church, who had done all these incredible things that I hope to maybe someday take part in. And I asked him, I said, what do I need to do to become the type of person that allows me to lead in the way that you lead, have led? And he said, long obedience in the same direction. It takes intentional, consistent, and sacred self-work to become like Jesus. What are the things we're putting in our life to sharpen us? What are the reminders we are placing in our life to help us love our neighbor better, to help us pour out in the world better? Um, but that's not all Paul says. He, he doesn't only say we need to become like Jesus and that takes work, but he also says this. Verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. A couple weeks ago, when I sat down with Mac, and we were talking about this series, and I knew I was gonna preach today, he was like, you you could preach on this passage, and I was like, no, thank you. (laughs) Because I couldn't know, I didn't know what to do with these two words, fear and trembling. Like, what is it about working on ourselves to become more like Jesus that would produce fear and trembling in us? Does anybody else feel that? That's kind of a weird tension. At least I felt like that. What is it that we need to be afraid of if God is all loving? And then it was one of those things where you ask a question only to realize that the next verse answers said question. Has that ever happened to anybody? Yeah, Uh, so let's read the next verse, starting in verse 13. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who has work in you enabling you both to work will and to work for his good pleasure. So what Paul is doing here is he's telling the Philippians that because Christ humbled himself and became like us, we must humble ourselves to become like Christ, and that takes work, but when we are doing that sacred work, do not miss what is actually happening. What he says is the source of life, King of the world, the one who made the universe, who knits together all the broken pieces, who knows us, who knows the hairs on our head, is actively at work in our own soul transforming who we are to look more like him. Are you are you serious? That's insane the God of the world at work in my soul when I am intentionally pouring myself out. And so I started thinking about what is it about participation with God that would cause fear and trembling? And then I thought about moments in my own life, sacred moments. Moments where I felt God's presence in a powerful way where I've encountered God and I knew I was encountering God and I could feel the fact that I was participating in God's life, that I could feel how clearly and deeply he loved me. These sacred moments, there are a handful of them that I've had over the course of my life. When I think about those moments where I'm in the presence of God, the thick presence of God in a radical way, it's hard to describe how I feel. But one of the ways would be fear and trembling. It's not the kind of fear that makes you get small. It's not the kind of fear that makes you shrink away. But in the presence of God, that fear is the kind of fear that actually fills your heart with fire, that fills your heart with courage and makes you stand taller. It's closer to wonder and awe at the absurdity that we get to walk with God. Are you kidding me? These sacred moments when you become come face to face with the God of the universe and everything inside of you is stirring and the closest thing you can say is like, I guess I'm afraid, but this is incredible. What Paul is telling the people in Philippi is that as you are working on yourself to become more like Jesus, do not miss what is actually happening. Do not miss the miracle that is occurring in your own soul. That love itself is at work transforming who you are to make you look more and more like love. to make you look more and more like hope and grace and self-sacrifice and overwhelming radical hospitality. Do not miss what is actually going on in your own soul when you are pouring yourself out to be like Christ. In that moment, you are participating with God's plan and his work in your life. What Paul says is that even the work is grace. Even when you are working, you're being fueled by grace. The whole thing is grace. We know God because of grace. We know God better because of grace. We become closer to God because of grace. And so as we are intentionally working to become more like Jesus in the world, God's grace is at work in our heart to make us more like him. Paul says, do not miss where you are. The whole thing is grace. A life lived, poured out to be like Jesus. A life lived intentionally shaping and organizing and structuring your life so that you can walk like Christ, pour out like Christ, care like Christ, love like Christ in the world. A life poured out to be like Jesus is a life lived with Jesus, don't miss where you are. Don't miss what we get to do. We're a walking miracle. And if you're sitting here and you, if you've never said yes to that relationship with Jesus, if you've never said yes to that radical love that enters your heart because of the work of Christ, because Christ humbled himself and became like us, to where you experience that deep and profound home and start on a journey to becoming the type of people who bring that home into the world, not because we have to, but because we get to. If you have never said yes to that. I wanna encourage you to pray this prayer after me with all heads bowed and all eyes closed. If you wanna say yes to the grace of Jesus, to the journey of becoming like Jesus, say a word like this. God, I need you. Thank you for pursuing me, for loving me, for humbling yourself and becoming like me so that I can become more like you. Thank you for offering me home. I say yes, I make you Lord over my life. Make me more like you. Now, if that was the first time you've ever prayed that prayer, with all heads bowed and eyes closed, we just wanna mark this moment. There's something special that happens when you physically respond. So if this is the first time you've ever prayed that prayer, I just want you to like silently raise your hand uh, in your seat. All right. It's our tradition here and our privilege here to say, as you lower your hands, we wanna put our hands together and we wanna say welcome. welcome.